Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Only because we're going to Revelation chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 7. We're going to look at the church at Ephesus, or the church in Ephesus. When we look at these letters to the seven churches, five of these letters are words of correction, two are words of encouragement. And quite often when we think of the healthy church or the health of the church, our eyes usually measure three things, buildings, budgets, and I cleaned it up for you, bottoms. Buildings, budgets, and bottoms, the number of people, because the more you have, the healthier church must be. When we think of the bigger, the better, what we fail to realize is that a large majority of the churches in the United States are 100 people or less on a Sunday morning. And many of them are healthy, even though they're not larger. So building budgets and bottoms and counting and all of those things, it's not true when you actually read what Jesus has to say to the seven churches of the Revelation. Because what really matters to Jesus is the heart of the church. Does the bride of Christ love the groom, Jesus, like he loves her? The greatest need and the greatest priority of each local church is to love Jesus, is to be faithful to the gospel, and to live lives that are pleasing to him. But to do those things without loving Jesus will lead us to totally miss everything. We'll be a busy church, but we won't be a healthy church. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Follow along with me. If you will, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to you this morning and our copy of your word is before us, you are fully aware of all that is going on in Coastal Oaks Church. And you know what is going on in each one of our hearts this morning. So, Lord, we pray as David prayed in Psalm 139 to search us and know our hearts, to try us, 
know our thoughts and to see if there be any grievous way in us and that you would continue to lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus, we want to be a victorious, overcoming church for your glory and our good. So Father, help us to hear the word. And as you speak to us, let there be a yes, Lord, as we wait for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we look at this letter. First, we really need to understand a little bit about Ephesus before we dig in any deeper. And I'm, as we work through the churches, the ones we're going to cover, I'll give you the background because it's important to know the background of each city in the context of who Jesus is writing to or who John is writing to on behalf of Jesus as he sends out these letters. So at the time, Ephesus is a strategically located city um, in, uh, in Rome. It's a major player in the world of commerce as it's an intersection of three major trade routes. So there's no wonder why uh, the Lord wanted a church there because from there the gospel would go out. Uh, as people would pass through, they would hear the gospel, no doubt, from those in the church, from the preaching of Paul who stayed there quite some time and then they would take that gospel home. It's a prosperous uh, city, commercially speaking. Um, it was a financial powerhouse in its day. They had large amphitheaters, uh, large temples, arenas for recreation and sports. Um, it was a marketplace uh, for the region, and so just extremely important. Um, and, and for that day, it was a rather large city, somewhere between 100,000 and 250,000 people. The founding of the church takes place in the book of Acts, and I would invite you to turn back there to Acts chapter 18 and 19, and we're going to look briefly at something that Paul told them um, before we get into uh, what Revelation chapter 2 has to say, but the founding of the church takes place around 18 and 19. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are there. Apostle Paul makes a stop there on the scene. Some of their former pastors are Timothy, which we have two letters written to Timothy, and tradition says... Church history says that the Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John and wrote this very letter uh, of Revelation, the, the, the Revelation, that he pastored Ephesus later in his life. So that's not in the scripture, but that is uh, an outside source uh, of history that uh, says John uh, pastored there for a time. But when you get to the city of Ephesus, what it was really known for was a large temple to Artemis or Diana, depends on which language you're speaking. It's the same, same God, the temple of Artemis and the temple of Diana. This temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and it stood with 120 60-foot columns. And so it towered above the rest of the city. It was in a very prominent place. And the worship to Diana or Artemis dominated life in Ephesus. It lent itself to all kinds of lifestyles that were done in the name of Artemis, all kinds of practices, most, if not all, immoral, certainly not helpful to the human condition that we are in. Part of that worship was magic. It was part of their religion. Superstition ruled the day. And of course, when you take a little bit of religion from everywhere and blend it, it's no big deal. Artemis and the worship to Artemis. That temple was actually uh, one of the ancient wonders of the world. 
way back then. But in Acts chapter 19, Paul arrives. Paul began preaching the truth of the gospel in Ephesus. And as he proclaimed Jesus, people began to get saved. That's what happens when you preach the gospel in a new place. People begin to get saved. And as they began to believe the gospel and put their lives in Jesus Christ and under his lordship, their lives begin to change. What happened? They begin to drop the temple worship. They began to get rid of the idols made of silver in order to follow Jesus. Because when Jesus is your Lord and he is Lord of all, you drop everything else and you follow him. And it is Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 19, specifically starting around verse 20, 21, that causes, well, it's not the preaching that causes riots, but another man um, named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. Demetrius and other silversmiths like him made their money on the worship of Artemis. They made the golden idols of Artemis and Diana, the silver idols of uh, Artemis and Diana. And so with people dropping the idols and coming to Jesus, they quit buying silver idols that Demetrius was making. So Demetrius is out of money. He's losing money because of this gospel, because of this preacher named Paul. So Demetrius stirs up the crowd to oppose the gospel and to oppose Paul and his preaching. Fast forward to Acts chapter 20 when Paul is ready to leave town. Paul dealt with it for some time. I believe he was there for about two and a half years, something like that kind of time frame. And here is his departing message to the church, and it is somewhat prophetic when we read Revelation chapter 2. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the pastors, elders of Ephesus to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So, Go back over to Revelation chapter 2, fast forward a couple of years, and we'll see where the church in Ephesus is. Here's what Jesus has to say to them, right? First, he identifies himself. We already know from last week in Revelation chapter 1 that this is Jesus uh, giving uh, John this vision of what is to come, and before John can see what is to come, he has some business to do with these seven churches. And so we see that the person of Jesus is offering his protection as John is relaying this message to the church. Christ Jesus presented himself there as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. In each part or each church that receives a letter, the identification of who is sending the letter always goes back to chapter one. You will hear a different description of Jesus, but they all come from chapter one. We've already heard that he is the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. That helps us to know this is Jesus. Notice again, he's actively holding the stars and he's actively walking amongst his churches. He was holding and walking then, he is holding and walking today amongst his churches. This is a display of his power 
and his lordship over the church as he walks about, and it is a display of his protection over the church. This, the church of Ephesus, is that which Jesus purchased with his blood on the cross, and he wants it to be near and dear to him. He cares, and he is present with them in the writing of this letter, and friends, he is present with us today. He is very much aware of what is going on in Ephesus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What we understand from the lordship of Jesus and the headship over his church is that there is nothing hidden from his view. Nothing. Whether we're talking corporately or as individuals when we leave this place, there is nothing hidden from the view of Jesus. From our perspective, everything might seem like it's in good shape. But Jesus has a different point of view. He has a different point of reference. His perspective, of course, is always the right perspective. Lest you want to take up an argument with Jesus, right, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who said, let there be light, and boom, if you want to argue with him, the one who brought you into this world and gave you life, and to quote Heathcliff Huxtable, he can take you out, right? Jesus, not the angels, walk among the lampstands. He is in control of his church, and he offers his protection. He maintains watchful care and absolute authority over the church. He knows so much that he first praises Ephesus for their strengths, their works, their endurance, and their doctrinal integrity. Let's look at that praise that Jesus offers. We find in verse 2. He says, I know, right, the one who holds the stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the golden lampstands. He is the one who knows your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So what we hear from Jesus is pretty straightforward. At first, he gives them this word of of praise, of, uh, of commending them for all that they're doing. They were active in doing many, many good things. And this is a church at this point that we would love to imitate right? on some levels. Right? He's aware of their works uh, of the Ephesus church. They're in Ephesus. He's aware of their correct doctrine, their correct theology. All of those things are, are working together. He acknowledges those works. He acknowledges their hard work. In fact, he says, your toil your patient endurance. There, there, there's a, a level of intolerance when it comes to evil men and false teaching. Those are all wonderful things, good things. They are testing the teaching of the false teachers. That's, that's a good thing, right? 1 John 4, 1 tells us that we are to test the spirits to see whether if they are from God. The Ephesus, Ephesus church was doing that. Paul reminded us in Acts chapter 17 of the Bereans who were of more noble character. Why? Because they were searching the scriptures to see if what Paul was preaching and saying was true. This is your job when it comes to what you hear from this pulpit. You are the one given that charge to test the spirits and to see if I am teaching false things. And if I am, I would fully expect you to call me out on it. But let's break it down like this. He says, task diligence, hard work. Friends, they are busy for the Lord. The church can be a busy group of people. We can plan things day and night, every day of the week. We got something going. We are busy. The word here for works and toil help us to understand it's quite strong, but it's to the point of you are working yourself to weariness, to the point of exhaustion. 
You're not afraid of the hard stuff. You're not afraid of the obstacles. They don't defeat you. They don't depress you. You're not intimidated by the challenges that are before you. You continue to work hard. And by God's grace, they really are living out Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul wrote, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, they are walking in them and even then some. They love the truth. They love discernment. You cannot bear with evil. You cannot tolerate evil. Their desire for purity, girded, guided by the scriptures, rather than what culture is saying. That's huge. I mean, what, that's how we want to be. We want to be people of the, of the word. We don't want to be influenced. We shouldn't be influenced by culture. We shouldn't let the 24-hour news cycle influence us. We shouldn't allow our team's win-loss record uh, to uh, influence us. And we shouldn't allow our team, you know, when they win their first championship ever, to influence us either. We're after truth. We're supposed to test what we hear and we're supposed to test it by the word of God. We are to critically examine the teachings of the people in ministry and decide whether it's a truth or a lie. This is shown by Jesus calling out the Nicolaitans in verse 6. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. That's not the first time we'll hear of this group. We'll hear it again when Jesus writes to another church. And we don't exactly know who they are. This is one, and, and the other place is, I think, is in chapter 3. But here is our best guess. An early church father named Irenaeus, he identified the Nicolaitans as a heretical group of followers of the deacon named Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve as a deacon in the first church. But it's somewhere along the way, Irenaeus says that Nicholas went off course and took some people with him, and they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence, meaning that they were indifferent to the cultural lifestyles around them. They were indifferent to adultery. They were indifferent to eating food sacrificed to idols. They could also be an early group known as the Gnostics, who thought that knowledge, a special knowledge, was the way to salvation, which had little to do with Jesus. But the Gnostics would also live a life of self-indulgence. They would pursue their, their, their desires for uh, luxury and pursue their lust, the lust of the flesh. Because for the Gnostic, those two things, the flesh and the, phys- the, the, flesh and the spirit, were two separate things, not, not combined in the same person like we believe. But very broadly, there's two issues here, okay? The first one is that they have an accommodating attitude toward the outside pagan world, allowing Christians in the church to participate in emperor or empire worship because in Rome, Caesar was God, right? So they would blend these two things together and say, hey, while you're not in church, right, it's okay to worship. If you're in a public setting, a civic setting, it's okay to worship the emperor, to worship the empire. If you're in the church, though, we should give our allegiance to Christ. Friends, that is not a biblical place to be. We are to pray for our leaders, but we give allegiance to one, the Lamb of God, who is worthy to open the scroll. That's where our allegiance rests, okay? Now, the other side of this is going to the extreme of liberty, which means that they were free from sin by doing whatever they wanted to on the premise that whatever I get involved in, whatever lifestyle of sin, has no effect on my salvation. I can do whatever I want because I'm saved, right? 
That's taking liberty way too far. Salvation calls us to holiness, not to a lavish lifestyle of indulgence. And today in the 21st century, what we face in America is that we are faced with tolerance. We want, people want us to be tolerant, which means affirmation. They want us to affirm the lifestyle that they have chosen. And I'm not just talking about a sexual lifestyle. We want, we are, we are continually trying to be pushed into this box of affirmation. If you love me, then you'll show me by affirming my decisions, whether they're sinful or not, which means you, you agree and you accept my lifestyle. Okay. That's what we're being pushed into this place of affirmation. And you certainly don't call out the sin in my life. But friend, that's not love. Love is the gospel. Love is we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and he will set you free. That's love. Jesus also points out their determination or their toughness. Friends, this was a tough-minded church because they were willing to stand up against Artemis and Diana. They were willing to do away with the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the images of the emperor they were not going to bow down to. And because of that, they were slandered, abused, rejected. They were rioted against. Their leaders were constantly thrown into prison. Peter, Paul, they all warned us that times of hardship are coming. But Paul said this to Timothy, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. I think I said Paul, that's Peter actually. So a gospel-focused, Christ-centered disciples, they were focused on him, they were focused on the work and the joy that comes from the struggle. So what's the problem? They sound so far like a very healthy church. They're busy, they're standing against, they're contending for the faith, they're contending for the truth. They sound determined to stand on truth and not let false teaching come in. What's the problem? Here's the problem that Jesus confronted. It's your passion, it's your love, your love for Jesus. Ephesus, we got a problem. We need to know this, friends, that there is no perfect church. When we read something like this and we, oh, Jesus was just setting them up, making them feel good, warm and fuzzy, that's the Jesus I love, and then here comes the hammer. Oh, we don't wanna hear this part, but we need to hear this part because we have to admit that there's no perfect church yet. If you leave us because we're not perfect, don't go down the street because they aren't perfect either, all right? And if you join us thinking, oh, we have found the perfect church, I would encourage you not to join us because we will disappoint you. Just keeping it real. We are not the perfect church. But we are a church, and we are the bride of Christ. And if you want to join us because we love the gospel and because we love Jesus, come be a part of us. The problem is pretty straightforward in verse 2. There's no need to fancy it up here. He says this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned your love, the love you had at first. This is the Achilles heel for the task-driven, tough-minded, truth-centered church. They forgot to love Jesus. If we are a church that is going to be task-driven, tough-minded, and truth-centered, and we're going to contend for the gospel, we cannot forget to love Jesus. Jesus. Task-driven people sometimes struggle with personal relationships. We can, we can knock out a to-do list, 
get our next to-do list ready for the next day, nail it, nail it, nail it. And by the end of the week, we hadn't made one personal connection with anybody because we're so task-driven. We see this in the church of Ephesus. The outward appearance of Ephesus says they look like a strong and healthy church, right? Their calendar is full. Their theology is spot on. Their actions met their confessional statements. But they're in danger of becoming a Pharisee church. Knocking off the to-do list, checking all the boxes, that leads us to legalism. And legalism would be the nail in the coffin for any church. Doing the right thing, but forsaking the right motivation. We'd say they didn't have a head problem, but they had a heart problem. Obedience out of duty replaced obedience out of a love for Jesus. What happened? Well, he says this, they left or they abandoned their love for Christ. Some translations that you you might have say lost. You've lost your first love. But the best translation is left. You left it. It's almost like it's intentional. They succeeded in so many ways, but the maintenance of the calendar... The maintenance of the success became more important than the motivation for the service. Having to maintain all the programs, having to maintain all the structure, they left their love of Jesus for the love of maintenance and maintaining themselves. Friends, maintenance happens in the church when we move into comfort and cruise control and just decide by actions to maintain the status quo. When we try to keep what we've got because we've enjoyed it at one time or it was successful one day some time ago, and we try to keep it rather than trying a new or different methodology, it means we start serving programs to keep up our numbers rather than joining God where he is at work because we love God and his direction more than we love our programs. And the church took out the love of Jesus and inserted a maintenance schedule for its preferences. Friends, we always have to heed the call of Christ himself and love Jesus above all others. And then we love others second. We get out of order. And when we get out of order and step into maintenance mode and we forget to love Jesus first, well, man, can we get all kinds of discombobulated I love that word. I just had to throw it in there. Discombobulated. We have to heed the sober warning of Jesus. There are times when we hear these words from Jesus. Listen closely. I have a problem with you. I have a problem with this area of your life. It's disappointing to me. It offends me. You see, the warm, fuzzy Jesus of the American church doesn't talk like that. But the Jesus of Scripture does. I have a problem. What you're doing is a disappointment. It's not holy. I didn't die for you to just live in your sin and worship me once a week. I died for life change. I died to transform your life from sin to walking in holiness. Friends, the grace of God calls for adjustment. The grace of God calls for change. And Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I've got a problem with you. 
Go fix it. He offers them the course correction. The plan is a three, just a simple three-point reminder. As in the other churches, the solution will always take uh, the form of a serious warning, and then he'll give a correction. Here is the demand for repentance and change. It's a three-step process. First, he says, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Keep on remembering. Don't stop remembering. But he demands that ongoing reflection. This is why I wanted to start today with Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Because we need the Lord to look deep into our hearts. He knows it. Show me, reveal to me in a grievous way. Why would we say that? Because we want to grow in holiness because we love Jesus. We want to become more like him. We are called to Christ-likeness. We are called to sanctification. He is bringing us along in that journey. And so we must say, search me and know me. Try me. Test me. Show me if there's a grievous way in me. Remember from where you have fallen. It is a deep concept in Scripture to recall the past. But to take the action or the memories of the past and then return to a right walk with God. You see this played out in the Old Testament time and again with Israel. In fact, let me read to you from Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 44. He, he calls out through Isaiah, God calls out Israel. He says this, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, for I have redeemed you. There is none like me. Romans chapter 15, verse 15, Paul says, On some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Remember how far you have fallen from where you were at first. This happens when more is made of a building or when more is made of a program or a ministry than Jesus Christ himself. We, have for, we forget where we've come from. We forget how far we have fallen. We might as well bow the knee and give glory to something else other than Jesus when we start thinking of buildings, budgets, and bottoms. What Paul is saying, well, excuse me, what John is saying here, or rather Jesus through John is, friends, you've got to remember when it mattered most to you. You've got to remember when the gospel and when Jesus Christ mattered most to you. What was that like? Jesus is calling them and us today to keep on remembering. Never forget. Never forget. Take inventory of that moment. Take inventory of the moment when your love for Jesus burned with passion. Remember that, that, that it then it's at that moment it, it mattered most. And then examine what's missing now. What is different in your habitual pursuits versus a love-motivated pursuit that you had in your early years when your life was radically changed. 
When you were worshiping an idol that was dumb, deaf, and mute and couldn't change a single thing if it wanted to, to now serving the living God that has radically changed your life. How long has it been since you left and you felt the holiness of God exposing all of your selfishness? You think back to Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. That's the first time we see, hey, wait a minute, the church is not going to be perfect. And God exposed Ananias and Sapphira's unholiness and lie to the church. He wants a holy church. He wants a church that is radically in love with him. How long has it been since you sensed the weight of divine displeasure in your life? How long has it been since you felt the weight of the guilt of your sin, realized that you had no deals to make, there was no payment that you could offer, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, to experience the freshness of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ? How long has it been because of a trust in Christ that guilt is then lifted and pardoned? That's where you've got to return. That's what you've got to remember because of a trust in Christ. That you stand in faith in Christ, fully forgiven, cleansed, sanctified, adopted, justified, welcomed. And so what John is calling us to, or Jesus rather is calling us to through John, is to dwell on the gospel. Think about the gospel. It is that which changed your life. Remember the gospel from God's holiness to our sin to God's justice against sin. There is that provision from God of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and his burial and his resurrection. There we see the grace and the mercy of God that he shows us to those who will trust in him. Remember the gospel. Then he says, repent. But based on the gospel, Jesus says, repent. That is to undergo a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of action to think different about your sin. Often illustrated by the lost art of the U-turn. You go going the wrong way, rather than just letting your phone or whoever is talking to you on your phone, Alexa or Siri or whoever it is, just rechart your course, bust a U-turn. If you do it fast enough, you leave some skid marks. It's 180. Yet we let the sins of indifference, religious formalism, legal routine, but we have to change our minds about our deeds, thinking that somehow all of our busyness and our full calendar will earn merit in God's favor. There's nothing that can earn God's merit, God's favor. It's grace. Jesus is telling them, friends, labor is no substitute for love. There is nothing there for doing good things for the wrong reason. Friends, Jesus is looking deep into the heart of Ephesus. And we can be right in our theology. We can be right in our doctrine and insufficient in our love for Jesus. And then we've lost the battle. So, he says, repent. The first repent that we read in this chapter, or this paragraph, or this passage, is an imperative, which means it's a command. Repent. He's calling them to repent. The second one, interestingly enough, is not. It's written with a sense that the outcome is not for sure. Will Ephesus repent? 
or will they not? It was up to the church of Ephesus. They possibly did. And then Jesus says, if you do, I won't remove your lamp from you. But if you don't, he promised to take the lamp away. So then he says, remember, repent, and return. Return to the works you did at first. This is the key to restoring the first love. The place and time when you were awed by the love of God through Christ. Through the life that was given for you. And you had that thought, why would he have done this for me? I don't deserve it. And that you think, he forgave my sins. That time when you walked and talked with him, the time that you had a song for him in your heart with people looking at you like you're crazy because you keep singing this weird song that they know nothing about. That time when you were continually aware of his presence, when you woke up, when you laid down and sleep at night, when you had lunch at work or you were in a, in a tough situation with a coworker, in times of conversation with him where you weren't just rattling off your list of wants and needs, but you actually had a conversation with the Lord in his word. You see, the church in Ephesus had neglected the first commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And so this is a call to return to Jesus, return to your Lord. The, the final warning here, again, is that if you don't, he would remove the lampstand. Friend, there is a promise here for the church. There's a promise here, and he closes with this. He offers this promise to the one who conquers, and he'll do this in every letter to the church. This is a hear me now, believe me later quote from Jesus to the one who overcomes. You're not going to get it yet. But if you maintain, you walk, you continue to walk in love with Christ and you continue to grow in holiness, then you will overcome. It's not suggesting that the overcomer is the one who overcomes the specific problem in each and every church, but rather the one who clings to the gospel and the one who loves Jesus. If you will cling to the gospel and love Jesus, you will overcome. If you look to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, there we get some insight into who he's talking about. He says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The blood of Christ says that, um, or Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that the placement for the atonement, the sacrifice for our sins, must be made in the life of the believer. And so one must confess Jesus is Lord and believe or trust in the heart that God has raised him from the dead, then the promise of Romans chapter 10 is you will be saved by the blood of the lamb. The word of their testimony. Your testimony is an act of trust in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior that leads you to walk in faithfulness even through the difficult situations of life, of the life lived for Christ. That's how we will overcome. And the reward, Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, the reward is to eat from the tree of life. That ought to take you back to the Garden of Eden. What was forfeited by Adam and Eve in the garden, the place, the time, the opportunity to walk with God is then restored. And the question for you, church, is will you be there? Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey in the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord.